played at the Severin Reno in Madoff. About 200 rock fans were at the rock show. We have a special edition of the Community Broadband Bits podcast this week. We're going to be responding to common arguments that we hear from the other side, typically from the cable and the telephone guys. Uh, And so, Lisa, you and I are going to be listening to a few of these arguments that they make, and we're going to be offering our thoughts on them. So Christopher goes to all sorts of conferences and different panel discussions all over the country, and he um, gets the opportunity to talk to a lot of different people, and hear a lot of different interesting conversations. So um, this first statement that we wanted to talk about deals with the amount of coverage um, that is right. in broadband, right? Chris? Right. Last year, I was in Wisconsin for the uh, WISCnet conference, and um, I heard a claim that I've heard just about everywhere I've gone. Um, and so we'll lead off with uh, one of the uh, the big lobbyists in Wisconsin for the uh, the telephone companies. Okay. Um, I'm Bill Esbeck. I'm the executive director of the Wisconsin State Telecommunications Association. Um, almost all of our member companies have 100% broadband availability in their local service territories, um, and statewide, there's. You know, somewhere between 5 and 10% of the most difficult customers to serve that may not have a broadband connection from their local phone company. So is that right, Chris? Would you say that there's about 100% of people in Wisconsin who have access to broadband? Well, he said of his member companies of uh, the trade association that he represents. Ah, yes. Very important uh, distinction. Right. And so that this is something we often hear. And the first question tends to be, what is broadband? And, and what you often find is when people are claiming 100% coverage is they're using a definition of broadband, which is generally very slow, which is to say not the definition from the Federal Communications Commission of four megabits down and one megabit up, but rather some other definition, which means a connection that is always on and is somewhat faster than dial-up, although it may only be four or five times faster. So we, we hear this a lot. We've heard it in Minnesota, um, in particular at a public meeting, which uh, I was not at, uh, dealing with the Sibley Network in, uh, in uh, Sibley County. And Frontier had claimed that, oh, we offer broadband in all of our exchanges. And a woman stood up and said, well, I'm a Frontier customer, and I was just told I can't get DSL at my exchange. And the Frontier person, without batting an eye, says, we offer broadband in 95% of our exchanges. <laughs> And so I mean, this is the, the frustrating thing is that we don't know really what the, what the number is. We know that we constantly run into people who say that they cannot get access. They call their telephone company and find that they cannot get access. Um, and many of the states have no real mapping. The federal mapping has been really poor in the sense of um, it's, it's relied entirely on the maps provided by the carriers themselves who have a, a real uh, tendency to overstate coverage because it makes it look like they're doing a better job. So um, it's that's and so that, that's one thing I think, which is the broadband definition, which is what is broadband, which is important to knowing if it's really there or not. But then the other thing we often hear along with this is commonly from CenturyLink is, oh, you want a gig? We'll get you a gig, no problem. You know, we're happy to deliver a gig to anyone who wants it. And the the issue with that is always at what cost. And and this is another issue is that almost no maps have cost 
as a layer on them, which is incredibly important because if you're trying to sell a person a, a very slow connection at a high cost, let's just say $60 a month in rural Minnesota for a slow DSL connection, well, of course, people there are not going to take that offer. It's overpriced and it's underdelivered. And so policymakers often look at these maps and say, well, the company says broadband's available there, so what's wrong with these people that they're not taking that offer? Mm-hmm. And the the real problem is is that it's not a good deal, that um, it's slow and often unreliable. So um, it's it's important to to recognize that availability has multiple multiple pieces to it, right? I mean, if if I came to you and said, sure, I'll give you a gig, Lisa. All you have to do is pay me ten thousand dollars a month and a fifty thousand dollar connect fee. You know, that's not available. And that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about next generation networks. So, but they, you know, they need to charge a lot to, um, in order to justify um, paying for all this innovation, right? Well, I mean, (laughs) that's what, that's what it comes down to is. That's what they say, I think, a lot of times, is, is that they have to charge a lot because it's a high-cost industry. Uh-huh. But uh, we, we regularly see people doing uh, better networks at lower cost. Both private companies and public sector uh, networks have built networks uh, that are more effective. And I think that um, we have another statement that, we, that uh, we wanted to talk about that deals with innovation and the, the private sector and the public sector. So let's listen to that. Think about the cell phone that you had in your pocket two, five, ten years ago. Think about the cell phone that you have in your pocket today. It wasn't the public sector that made that happen. It's the private sector. This is something we've heard multiple times, right? Which is a person holds up their cell phone and some some variation on the theme of this thing is changing too quickly. Um, in this case, he was crediting the private sector with uh, with the rise of cell phones. There's a number of ways in which one can look back at the important contributions that pub- the public sector has made to cell phone technology. I don't want to get into that here so much as this idea that cell phones are changing so rapidly, therefore it does not make sense for a local government to build a fiber optic network, right? The common belief is often next is to say wireless is the future. Why would we invest all this money in wires? Because it's all going to be obsolete in five years. Look at my cell phone. It's it's a fallacy. Um, you know, you look at the, the copper wire that's delivering telephone service still to most Americans. That was put in the ground 100 years ago, and it's still being used. Fiber optics are being put in the year now. It's a 100-year technology. If fiber optics were going to be too old and be replaced soon by a new technology, if that was going to happen, let's just say, seven years from now, it would already be in our universities. That replacement technology would be being developed by academics. It would then be commercialized over a period of many years, and then it would be rolled out slowly over a period of many more years. And so even if there was something on the horizon that was going to take over for fiber optics, it's pretty far down the line before that would happen. And so you have to recognize that there are things that move quickly and there's things that move slowly in terms of infrastructure and these services. And now the services, they may be changing quickly, but your poles, your conduit, your fiber optic cables, those things change very slowly. And we're going to be putting out a wireless fact sheet pretty soon about wireless connections. And they need fiber optic connections in order to just even function. Absolutely. That's one of the another common claim, I think, is is, is that the world's going to wireless 
therefore we don't need wires. Now, as I've just said, I don't, I don't think that's accurate, but to, to build on that, the more wireless that we will have for it to work well, we need much better fiber optic networks. And that's something Dwayne uh, Hendricks has come on our show multiple times to explain. And so anyone who wants to learn more about that can dig into the archives. And then at that same event, Chris um, heard this argument. That's what is at stake here is the fundamental need for private sector investment that is going to be absent in Wisconsin if private sector telecommunications providers are facing public sector competition. This is a this is a threat, right? This isn't the scaring anymore. Now we're into the threatening, which is to say, if you dare to build networks that compete with us, we will take our ball and go home. We will yeah. leave the playground, right? Um, and this is this is one of the classic ones. I mean, the um, the the fancy economists that get paid a lot of money by the cable companies they call this the um, uh, crowding out argument, right? Which is to say, if a municipal government or a community-owned uh, network is built, that uh, it will crowd out private sector investment. Now, I, I want to start by noting that, that our position has long been that we need both public and private sector investment in broadband networks. Uh, we, there's plenty of, uh, there's a role for everyone. Um, for more than 100 years, we've had electricity delivered by municipalities, been delivered by rural co-ops, and has been delivered by private companies. And so this is not an argument that we can do without one or the other. I think we fundamentally need an all-hands-on-deck approach. Um, but in particular, the, the empirical evidence on this could not be more clear. When a municipal government builds a network, you see more investment in the private sector than you had previously. And that's because uh, with, without a municipal network, you may have a DSL that is ad- inadequate, it's, it's slow, it's unreliable, and there's no incentive to improve it because people don't have a better option. Or you may have a cable network, which is the high-speed option, and there's no reason to make it go faster because people are already locked into that cable network, basically. When you give them a choice, the cable company has to decide whether or not it wants to just leave town, which is what uh, Mr. Esbeck seems to believe would happen, uh, or it can compete. And uh, the economics are pretty clear that you can support a few providers, let's just say up to three in many communities, uh, and so the idea that they would somehow leave town because they're so offended at the idea of, of a community building its own network, it's not supported by, the, by any empirical evidence. It's not supported by theory, which suggests that competition should only lead to more investment. It's, in fact, crazy talk that's just trying to scare communities out of building, their ne- out of building networks. Crazy talk. Absolutely. We, we hear a lot of crazy talk, and I don't often get to label it crazy talk. But in this situation, I'm willing to go out, come out on a limb and say that absolutely it is crazy. We find there's, there's maybe two or three examples of the hundreds of communities that have invested in networks where we've seen the private sector uh, decide that it was no longer interested in investing there. It's incredibly rare. We'd like to know how people react to this because I think it can be useful to respond to these talking points. If people want to send in talking points that we should address, they should feel free to do so. And if they want to join us to, to do this sort of thing, uh, I think we should invite them on to, to share their best way of, uh, of rebutting a talking point. We Absolutely. Can, that would be great. It would send be nice in an to... MP3. Um, yeah. Try and keep it to, let's just say, three minutes or less. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, let's hear how you want to respond to some of the talking points you hear. Sounds great. 
Thanks for listening as Chris and I delved a little deeper into some common talking points about private and public networks. If you encounter other crazy talk that you'd like us to address in a future podcast, please let us know. We plan on doing at least one more show addressing these common misconceptions and false claims. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Community Nets is our handle. This show was released on June 4th, 2013. Thank you again to the group Eat at Joe's for their self-titled song licensed using Creative Commons. Joe's.